0: Well, one of the cardinal rules of superheroes is that you have to keep your mask on. People cannot know who you are. Why not? Because if people know who you are, then they have access to personal information that might compromise your, uh, what you want to do. Uh, they might know, let's say, where Aunt May lives and hold her hostage. But the other reason that superheroes shouldn't reveal who they are is that if you're a superhero, it doesn't actually really matter who you are. Uh, People don't need to know your identity to be rescued. They just need to know that you're a superhero. And that's why Tony Stark creates such a sensation when he takes his mask off and makes clear for everybody to know, I am Iron Man. Now, of course, people knew and had their suspicions all along, but still, superhero discretion would have required him to keep it secret. Tony Stark was never one to play by the rules, though he was the Iron Man, and he wanted everyone to know that. Now, in the Bible, we meet another superhero who finally takes his mask off. People had been whispering about him for a while. They had their suspicions. They knew there was something about him. But he finally calls a press conference, and he makes it plain. Not to satisfy his ego, though. He's not that kind of superhero. In fact, he takes his mask off because, unlike other superheroes, his identity is tied up in his power to save. We have to know who he is in order to be rescued by him. We have to know what's behind the mask. Of course, I am describing Jesus, who is the superhero who came to save us from death and sin. Now, while Jesus wasn't always uh, forthcoming about his real identity as the Son of God, there is a moment where he takes the mask off and reveals to the world who he is. And I actually want to look at this moment in the gospels as the next installment of our summer study. We're in a, a series here at Rooftop this summer called Summer in the Sun, S O N. And the series is all about getting to know Jesus better. We talk about a lot of stuff here at Rooftop, but we want to make sure that Jesus is our home base, we want to come back to Jesus, just make sure we're becoming experts on who Jesus is. And during the summer the way we're getting to know Jesus is by looking at some of the names and some of the titles that people use of him in the Gospels. Jesus goes by a lot of names, a lot of different titles, and you can learn a lot about somebody by uh, understanding their name or their title. Jesus goes by the name Son of Man, Son of God, Son of David, uh, Christ, um, Teacher, Mediator, like we talked about last week. And one of the names, one of the more important names, actually, that Jesus uses of himself in the Gospels is the name I Am, Now, admittedly, that's a really odd name for anybody to use in reference to themselves. I mean, none of us go around calling Jesus I Am. Hey, I was talking to I Am the other day. But it's nonetheless a pretty important name for the very simple reason, lots of reasons that we're gonna talk about, but especially for the reason that it's one of the few names that Jesus uses in reference to himself, one of the few names that Jesus gives about himself. So we have a lot to learn about Jesus by understanding this name in the moment that Jesus chooses to take off his mask and reveal himself to the world as the great I am. To see what I'm saying, let me go ahead and take you to the moment, the unveiling. It takes place in the Gospel of John chapter 8. Let me just go ahead and read it to you, and then we'll discuss it. It's John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. The Jews answered Jesus, aren't we right, and saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed. "'I'm not possessed by a demon,' said Jesus. "'But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. "'I am not seeking glory for myself, "'but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. "'Very truly, I tell you, "'whoever obeys my word will never see death.'" At this, the Pharisees exclaimed, "'Well, now we know that you're demon-possessed.'" Abraham died and so did the prophets yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death are you greater than our father Abraham he died so did the prophets who do you think you are Jesus replied well if I glorify myself my glory means nothing my father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me though you do not know him I know him If I said I did not, I would be a liar, like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. At this, the Pharisees picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. This is a very well-known story, and the reason it's so famous is because Jesus finally makes plain to his followers and foes alike who he is, the God of the universe. He calls a press conference, makes it plain. Yeah, Jesus has made crazy claims about himself before. He's called himself the Messiah, the Christ. But here he goes for all the marbles. He he crosses the line that one shall not cross. He doesn't just call himself Messiah, but what? God, the actual God of Israel, the actual God of the universe. Cue the hysteria. But I'm actually getting ahead of myself. Jesus doesn't just come out and call himself God. His announcement comes at the end of a very long debate that he's having with his theological, political nemeses, the Pharisees. And in order to really appreciate sort of the climactic moment here where he reveals himself as as the I am, uh, you gotta kinda understand how the debate progresses. So let me take a few moments, kinda walk you through the discussion here that he has with the Pharisees so that we can kinda understand and appreciate the climactic moment. Early in the passage, Jesus makes a claim that starts raising the temperature with the pharisees He says very truly I tell you whoever obeys my word will never see death So there's really only one way to live forever and that's to obey my word now the pharisees can't really understand this They're deeply offended by it. It seems completely ludicrous to them and you can understand why you're saying that if we obey what you give us to Do we're never going to die They see that as evidence that Jesus is possessed by a demon, which you can kind of understand. As they respond, Now we know you're demon-possessed. Abraham died. So do the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. All our great heroes have died. So are they like, you know, did they not obey your word? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died. So do the prophets. Who do you think you are? I love that final question. Who do you think you are? We ask that question to other people when we think they are being bold or arrogant. Or acting out of place. I remember when my mother asked me that question after I had tried to sell off my baby brother Brad to the neighbors. (laughs) Matthew, who do you think you are? Well, this is a good idea. Gives rid of Brad, gives me some spending cash. She said, no, no, that's my decision, not yours. Okay, fair. (laughs) Regardless, I like the question because it's actually the perfect setup. I mean, the Pharisees asked Jesus, who do you think you are? And he's going to tell them. Now, the gist of their complaint, though, the gist of the Pharisees' complaint is that Jesus has just promised that whoever follows him will never die. I mean, that's what he says. Whoever obeys my word will never see death. In fact, not only does Jesus say uh, they will never see death, this, this phrase is actually a really interesting phrase. It's in the emphatic tense. Now, in Greek, New Testament was written in Greek, you know what it means to, to, to emphasize something? Like when we're in speaking in English, how do you emphasize something? When you're writing in English, how do you emphasize something? You can underline it, you can highlight it, you can bold it, embolden it. But in Greek, uh, you can't do any of that. They actually had an emphatic tense. They would use slightly different words for emphasis. So a real literal rendering of, of, of what John writes here, what Jesus says here is, is basically, whoever obeys my word will never, ever see death. Doing a little Taylor Swift here. <laughs> Whoever obeys my word will never, ever, ever see death. <clears throat> now, of course, this sounds ridiculously too good to be true to the Pharisees. They know, as we do, that everybody dies, even their hero Abraham, the original Hebrew, father of the Jews. They're all dead, as are the prophets. How can Jesus' followers never see death when statistics suggest otherwise? Everybody dies. But the Pharisees are doing what the Pharisees do. The Pharisees are actually making a mistake that they make very commonly. They are taking Jesus too literally. Pharisees are always taking Jesus too literally. Uh, Jesus says something like, wait, how does that happen? Uh, Jesus says, uh, I am the bread of life. And the Pharisees ask, well, should we eat you? To Nicodemus, uh, Jesus says, you you cannot be saved unless you are born again. And Nicodemus says, well, how am I supposed to get back into my mother's womb? They're taking Jesus too literally here, and that's what's going on here again. They think he's saying that whoever follows Jesus will never die physically, but he's actually not saying that. He's not talking about physical death. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the ministry of Jesus, but Jesus actually didn't seem to be that concerned about physical death wasn't really that big of a deal to him. I mean, it was was painful, right? Nobody wants to die. But there's a much larger concern that Jesus was concerned with, spiritual death, eternal condemnation. And that's what he's saying. Whoever follows him, whoever obeys his word, will never die spiritually. You won't die after dying. You will live eternally in God's presence forever. That's what he's saying will happen to people who follow him. Now, the Pharisees don't care to understand that. They don't get it. Abraham died. Everybody dies. Jesus can't make promises that obviously aren't true, they think. Now, since the Pharisees actually brought up Abraham, though, Jesus decides to play along. He says, okay, all right, Abraham. You brought up Abraham. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He did see it and was glad. Abraham was the original Hebrew. He's the father of the Jews. His, his life is narrated in the Old Testament book of Genesis. God called Abraham out of her, took him to the land of Canaan, promised to turn his offspring into a mighty nation. Now, even though he died thousands of years before Jesus, Jesus insists that even Abraham, even Abraham, the father of the Jews, looked forward to the day of the Messiah, looked forward to the arrival of Jesus, he saw it coming, he knew it would come, and when he looked forward and saw it, it made him glad. That's what Jesus is saying. Even Abraham looked, saw my day, and it made him glad. Abraham was like one of you long-suffering Blues fans before they won the Stanley Cup. You know, you fans, you knew the Blues were going to win the Stanley Cup at some point. Eventually, you would. I mean, that sort of thing, you can't play hockey for 50 years and never win the Stanley Cup. It would happen someday, and you looked forward into the future. (laughs) And it made you glad. You didn't know when, but it made you glad to just see it. Abraham knew the Messiah would arrive someday, and it made him glad. Now, of course, this gets the Pharisees all in another huff. Why? Because Abraham died like 2,000 years before Christ, and yet Jesus claims that Abraham saw his day. Pharisees are astounded. You are not yet 50 years old, they said, and you've seen Abraham? You can hear the sarcasm in their voices. Oh, you've seen Abraham. This guy's seen Abraham. What did he look like? Was he like short and squat? Was he like tall? Was he like big boned? Where'd you see him? Did you see him at the like the camel shop? Yeah, just see him at the camel shop. See him at the Jerusalem like bazaar? Here though is where Jesus just goes ahead, takes the mask off. Here's what he says. I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is going beyond messianic claims here. He's no longer telling the audience, I am the Christ, I am your Savior. He's saying, oh, oh, I am your God. We actually know that because of what he says and what he doesn't say. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I am was, that would have actually made more sense. Even if you were still claiming to be God, that would have made more sense. Before Abraham was, I was. No, he doesn't say that. He says, before Abraham was, I am. I'm not the God who was, I'm the God who is. You see, in the Old Testament, God has many names in the Old Testament, but maybe the most important name for for God in the Old Testament was the Hebrew name Yahweh, Yahweh, it's a Hebrew word, probably translates, I am who I am. And the moment that name is sort of revealed to the Israelites is, is this moment here. This is not a, a, a photographic capturing of the moment. This is an artistic rendering of Moses meeting God in the burning bush in the wilderness. God calls Moses to this burning bush, sends Moses, says, Moses, I want you to go down to Egypt, release the captives, my children, nation of Israel, Moses, is like, oh, okay. Well, they're going to want to know who sent me. Who should I say sent me? What's your name? God says, tell them Yahweh sent you. Tell them I am who I am sent you. Now, that name, Yahweh, was actually so sacred that the Hebrews, the Jews, many still today, don't even say it. They don't even write it. Now, we do. A lot more informal there. But in Greek, New Testament isn't in Greek, and in Greek, the name Yahweh is sort of turned into the Greek phrase, ego eimi. The idea of I am isn't expressed as Yahweh, it's expressed as ego eimi. And you can kind of see it in the words. I know this is getting complicated, but you're doing a great job. Hanging with me. Good job, team. Here we go. Ego eimi is sort of the Greek version of Yahweh, and you can kind of see it. Ego, ego, I, me, am. And Jesus is always in the Gospel of Mark saying ego eimi. He's always saying I am. But he's usually using it with what's known as a predicate. Maybe you know what a predicate is. A predicate is something used of the subject. So Jesus is saying I am the bread of life. Ego eimi, the bread of life. That's the predicate. I am, ego eimi, the resurrection. I am um, the water of life. The water of life. So he's always saying, ego eimi, a predicate. But here, here though, he just leaves the predicate off. He says, before Abraham was, ego eimi, I am. Now if you've been following Jesus, you're waiting for the predicate. You're waiting for what he is. You are what? You are hungry? Are you hungry? You are tired. You're tired. You are the warrior. (laughs) You are Iron Man. You are Groot. Are you Groot? You are Groot. (laughs) What are you? And Jesus doesn't say anything else. He says, No, no, no. Egoi me. I just am. I was, I will be, and I am. The Pharisees know exactly what he's saying. How do we know that they know exactly what he's saying? Because what do they do? They pick up stones to kill him. Because they understood that he has just claimed to be the great I am who I am. As John writes, at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now Jesus, being God, knows how to make a getaway. (laughs) He kind of gets away to fight another day. Now that's the passage. Jesus has taken the mask off. He has identified himself as the very God of Abraham, the very God of Moses. He's calling himself the great I am but. So what? What does that mean for us? What are the implications that Jesus has identified himself as the I Am of the Old Testament? Well, the implications of that for you and I are profound and many. But let me share with you briefly three before we conclude in worship and you will be disappointed to know that these do not start with the same letter. I could not get it done. I've failed you. It's a major step backwards for me. Three implications of Jesus identifying himself as the I am of the Old Testament. The first implication is this. We must worship Jesus for who he says he is. We must worship Jesus for who he says he is. That's what's important in this passage. It's Jesus' self-revelation. It's what Jesus says about himself, This is not a name that other people gave to him. It's a name he gave to himself. Nobody else would even dare give this name to him. It's a name that he had to claim for himself. I mean, the Pharisees even help him out on this point. They say, who do you think you are? They're actually onto something here. That's what's important. Who does Jesus say he is? Himself. This is very important for you and I because we don't always let Jesus tell us who he is is we're far more interested in something else what are you and i more interested in who we think jesus is for example billions of people in the world know of jesus but they won't let jesus define himself they think of jesus as a great teacher great leader man of love man of sacrifice a buddy a pal plenty of world religions plenty of world religions talk about jesus as a sort of guy you want to exemplify and hang out with, and Jesus is that. But what people conveniently forget sometimes is Jesus' bold and sane claims to be the God of the universe. I mean, Hinduism, Islam, for example, among others, say Jesus should be respected and honored as a great teacher. And a prophet and a moral example they ignore jesus own claims to be god himself many of our neighbors and friends here in st louis think jesus has a lot to contribute to society through his example but you tell me what do we normally do with people who claim to be god we ignore them or we lock them up you can't say a man should be a role model If you also think he was insane because he thought he was God. This is what people do. Instead of letting Jesus define himself, we make him something else so that we can understand him better and find him less offensive. We sort of change who Jesus says he is so that we can kind of fit him into our own mental construct. Even the Pharisees do this. I mean, the Pharisees are trying to understand who Jesus is. Who did they think he was? They tell us in verse 48. They say, aren't we right? Aren't we right in saying that you are Samaritan and demon-possessed? I mean, that's the only way that they could kind of fit Jesus into their brains that he was some demon-possessed foreigner. Their minds didn't have space for Jesus' claims. But we do this too. We don't let Jesus define himself. How not? By treating Jesus as something even slightly less than the God of everything, we are committing the Pharisees' sin. And we do this. When we ignore what Jesus says about important matters... We're choosing to worship Jesus as we want him to be and not who he is. When he tells us to serve the poor and we say, no, we're too busy or we don't have enough money, we're choosing to worship Jesus as we want him to be and not who he is. When he tells us that it is really important to forgive our enemies and to work out our conflicts with others brothers and sisters in Christ, when Jesus tells us that and we say no, I, I, don't ha- I can't do that, we're choosing to worship someone other than who Jesus actually revealed himself to be. In all sorts of ways, we choose to worship the Jesus we want to believe in and not the Jesus who really exists. Jesus takes the mask off for us to worship him as the I am. And what do we do? Right, like, no, 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 no. If, if, God, if you don't mind, just Jesus, if you don't mind, just put, put the mask back on for us. So that we can worship you on our terms, not in yours. But to be a Christian means to let Jesus tell us who he is. And He is! Period. That's the first implication. We've got to worship Jesus as who he says he is. The second implication is this. Only by following the God who never dies can we really live. Only by following the God who never dies can we really live. In claiming to be the great I am, Jesus is claiming to be beyond death. He transcends birth. He transcends death. Abraham was. David was. Moses was. You and I will be was at some point. But Jesus is. Jesus is the God who has never ceased to exist. And it is by this power that we too can truly live. As Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never, ever see death. Now for the record, that's quite a promise. And it's kind of understanding That uh, it's you can understand why the Pharisees didn't really get that or or appreciate that to, to think that somebody might never ever see death But it's still appealing I mean imagine never ever seeing death Imagine never ever getting sick Imagine never ever getting cancer Imagine never ever having to plan a funeral We see a lot of death in our lives. I attended a funeral last week for a young man who was so overwhelmed by the pressures of life that he went to bed one night and decided to drink himself to death. We've got a funeral this Tuesday night for a rooftop fourth floor, Judy Murphy, who lived a long, full, happy life, but spent the last few years of her life in chronic pain and dementia. We see death everywhere. On my way home, I will drive by three, count them, three cemeteries. We see death everywhere which makes Jesus' promise so unbelievably extraordinary. Imagine never, ever having to see death. Never, ever, ever. And I'm not talking, again, I'm not talking physical death. According to Jesus, physical death, it's a thing, but it's not a big deal. It's not the real problem. No, Jesus is talking about spiritual death. He's talking about never dying after dying and living forever with God. As he tells Martha, Martha, In the Gospel of John chapter 11, in the the story of Lazarus, which you might know, he says this, whoever believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never, ever die. That's in the emphatic tense too. Imagine that. Imagine living forever. The point here, though, is that if you want to live forever, it's going to take someone who always has and always will. If you want to live forever... Gonna take someone who always has lived forever and who always will live forever. I mean your doctor can't make you live forever. Your chiropractor <laughs> can't make you live forever. Your physical trainer can't make you live forever. I myself have many magical powers, but can't make you live forever. Only I am can. Only the one who overcame death can get you through it. Only one who took off the mask for all to see. All we need to do is trust that Jesus is who he says he is. Trust he is the God who transcends death, that he is the God who is. That's what it means that Jesus is the I am of the Old Testament. It means that we must worship him for who he says he is, the creator, the sustainer of everything. It means that he transcends death, has the power to give life. But it also means one more thing, one more thing that I want to share with you before we close in worship. It means that Jesus is with us. Jesus is with us. The name I am uh, is, is actually... Hebrew scholars have a lot of fun trying to, to define Yahweh just right. And, it, and it's really actually a very difficult word to translate. Some, some people translate, I am who I am, I am that I am, I am the God who is, I am the God who always will be. Uh, so it, gets a re- it, it becomes a very academic debate. What is God's name precisely? And sometimes that can get a little too heady sometimes. But on a more personal level, the, 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 the big idea, I think, but behind the name I am uh, suggests to us God's presence with us. That's what's behind the name. I am who I am, and I am the God who is with you. That's actually what God tells Moses. I am who I am. I am with you. I am the God who is with you. As you go do battle with Pharaoh, I will be with you. As you lead the Israelites through the wilderness, I will be with you. You might not always see me. You might not always feel me. Oh, but I am there. I am with you. I am the God who is with you. When Jesus reveals himself as I am, he's giving the invisible, ever-present God a face. Jesus is the God who is with us. Jesus is the God who was with Moses. Jesus is the God who was with Israel, in the wilderness, in the temple. That was Jesus. That is Jesus giving us courage, giving us direction, giving us hope. This should give us comfort. It should give us comfort to know that Jesus is the God who was with us, that we're never alone. It did the disciples. Jesus' disciples. Maybe you know the story. I'll tell you a story and then, then we'll Start wrapping up, but maybe in you know the story of um, Jesus' disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee, uh, they're in a boat. They have to go someplace to do disciple business, so they get in a boat across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has some messianic business to attend to, so he stays behind. And eventually, uh, Jesus decides, oh, "I got to catch up with them," so he kind of walks on the water. You can do that, in the Messiah. We're near the I am. Now the disciples are out in the middle of the ocean and um, this big storm comes and takes over the sea and there's huge waves and they think, oh, we're going to die. This is, this is the end. Uh, and then they see this human figure walking on the, the surface of the water. They're like, oh, that's the angel of death <laughs> coming to reap us. Uh, Jesus gets a little bit closer and, and listen to what he says to uh, the disciples in the story in John, John chapter 6. He says this. Then Jesus said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Now this isn't obvious from the English, most English translations, but maybe you know where I'm going with this. Can you imagine what the Greek phrase is there for the English phrase? It is I. Ego a me. I am Yahweh. I am the God who is. He is announcing his identity as the God of everything while out there on the water. He's saying, I am. I am God. I am with you. No matter what storms you're facing in life right now, no matter how scared you might be, I am God. I am with you. No matter what medical battles you are facing, I am God and I am with you no matter what mental illness you are battling, I am God and I am with you. No matter what social injustices are driving you insane, I am God and I am with you. That's what he's saying. But it does require something of us. It required something of the disciples. He is asking something of us. What is he asking? He's asking us to let us into the boat. I am God, I am with you, but let me into the boat. Let me take you where you want to go. As a God who is, Jesus wants to be more present in our lives than we oftentimes want him to be. We want God to be God. We want Jesus to be God. We just want him to stay out of our boats. You know what I'm saying? But Jesus can't be your God outside your boat. In order for God to be with us, we need to let him into the boat. We need to invite him into our lives, into our hearts, into our minds. And that's your opportunity here this morning to let Jesus as the great I am into your boats, into your relationships, into your conflict, into your depression, into your addiction, into your job, into every part of who you are.